So good news brings gladness to the heart. A young married couple waits for the ultrasound technician to reveal the gender of their baby. The technician moves her tool over the mom's stomach. Oh, we have a shot. You're going to have a little girl. And the husband and wife are glad. A woman has been waiting for test results to come back from her last checkup. She's been concerned about signs of sickness. The phone is ringing and the number is from the doctor's office. Hello, this is Mary from the doctor's office. Just wanted you to know that the doctor looked at your results and told me to tell you that your numbers and your scans are good. You don't need to worry. That's good news. There's a sigh of relief and the woman is glad. A student, he's been working long and hard for an important math test that could make or break his GPA for a college application. And the teacher comes back with the test results and says, I'll only announce the three who scored A's on the test. The first name is red, strike one, it wasn't his name. The second name, strike two. And then the teacher says the third and final person who scored an A on the test, and he names this young man. And there's gladness, there's a sincere gladness that comes into his heart. Or a mortgage company sends a letter home. We charged you too much this last year on your escrow account. <laughs> we owe you $524. And you all are smiling and chuckling because you're glad about it. Does the good news of who Jesus is ever bring gladness to your hearts? Think about it. There is news that you hear Words that you hear from people, updates and reports that you hear from people, and it brings gladness, genuine gladness, to your hearts. So let's ask the question again. Does the good news of who Jesus is bring gladness to your hearts? As we come to our passage today, we can assume that the exchange between Jesus and the crowd is happening on Tuesday. Later in the week, on Thursday evening, the soldiers are going to come, arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, bring him back to Jerusalem. There's going to be a trial on Thursday night. By Friday morning, Jesus will be crucified on a cross outside of Jerusalem. But today, with Jesus, it's Tuesday. You can imagine the weight that Jesus feels as the dark shadows of death are inching closer and closer. He knows what is going to take place in the week. The religious authorities have been closing in on him, trying to attack and discredit him with questions. Questions like, by what authority do you do these things? If he says God, the religious leaders can attack him for blasphemy. If he says man, the crowds might be disappointed. Should we or should we not pay taxes to Caesar? Asked another group of leaders. If he says yes, the Jews are going to be disappointed. If he says no, the Herodians are going to be opposed to him. A woman outlasted seven husbands, Jesus. Whose wife will she be in heaven? There's seemingly no right answer to that one. And then out of the 613 laws, which commandment is the greatest in all of those laws? So with every asked question, 
They are aiming to discredit Jesus, attack him, and really rid him from the scene. But Jesus answers back in each series of questions with powerful truth and wisdom that satisfies the question. And more than that, he even silences those leaders and actually discredits them. And so they are, they are rising with more and more anger. But then there's the crowds. Like today, if you're living in the first century as a Jew, you might be among those who are tired of all the hypocrisy of religious leaders. Tired of the games and political mover, maneuvers that are played from people to save face, those who are in leadership. You are tired of how the world is going and the answers that are being given. Tired of the lack of meaningful leadership. And then there's Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth who shows up on the scene. He's like no one in the establishment. And what Jesus says resonates with people. It makes sense. It's like wind in the sails. He's full of genuine love for people. And the more you listen to Jesus speak, the more you observe his actions, you find yourself growing with gladness over him. And here we are 21 centuries later. And the question remains, when you see the Jesus in the scriptures, when you hear his words, when you see his actions, when you look at his promises, is there gladness that comes into your heart? Do you have gladness that Jesus is the Christ who delivers us from the scars that Andy was talking about earlier? Do you have gladness in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God who has taken on judgment for you? That's what this passage sort of lasers our attention on. The crowds heard him gladly. So let's move into our passage Several questions that will serve as the points. I'll give them to you as we go along. Jesus has been asked questions, but now it's time for him to ask questions. And question number one is, who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? So he asks the question in verse 37, or 35, I'm sorry. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, so... Two observations I want you to see here, the two titles. Notice the two titles. There's the title Christ and there's the title the Son of David. We've talked about who the Christ is since the very beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. We know that it's been Mark's aim to show us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer who is promised in the Old Testament. And the Jews longed for this Christ or this Messiah to come along and make all the wrongs right. And Jesus says here, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So here's the second observation, the son of David. Who is this son of David? To the Jewish mind, it's very familiar language. In the Old Testament, there are promises that a king a Messiah king, a delivering king, would sit on David's throne forever and ever. So I'm going to just run through a few of these passages from the Old Testament so that you can see them. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, God made a promise to David. Here's the covenant he made. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. 
All right, let's keep moving. And I think these will fill in with color for us. David was given a covenant, a promise. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Familiar verses for us at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now notice again, who is this Messiah, Christ-like figure? Well, we know that on the throne of David, he will sit and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you're seeing language about the son of David on David's throne, but it gets even more clear here. Jeremiah 23 Verses five and six, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. All right, so more language about a Messiah connected to David. And then Jeremiah 33 Verses 15 and 16, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and she, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. All right, so when Jesus asks this question to the scribes, when he says, or about the scribes, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He is not asking a hard question yet. He's just simply, how can they say that? And they would turn to the Old Testament passages and say, well, we've been promised this for centuries, going back to 1000 BC. God made a covenant to David that on, through David's line, a king would come and David's throne would abide forever. Well, this language continued even into the early chapters of the Gospels, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 33. Angel comes to Mary and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, here it is, the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All right, so when Jesus asks this question, I just want you to know that this is not a difficult question to answer. This part of Jesus's question is not difficult. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Once again, the scribes would answer by going to the Old Testament and say, well, we're promised this that a Messiah would come and that he would come through the line of David. But now, Jesus extends the question with more insight from the Old Testament that presents a challenge. Okay, so the first part here is not so much of a challenge, but what Jesus is going to say next is. So here's maybe a parallel illustration. Your child comes up to you and asks the question, how is it that the earth orbits the sun? I mean, there's no like steel beams that go out from the sun to the earth and attaches itself to the earth and keeps us 
in orbit all year long. And you say, oh, well, that's kind of easy. I was taught that gravity holds the Earth in its orbit to the sun. Hmm, okay. That's been taught. But then your child asks, well, then why doesn't the Earth get sucked into the sun if gravity pulls everything down? And you're thinking, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Or why doesn't the Earth go spinning off into space when it's going around its orbit if there's no steel beam attached from the sun to the Earth? And you, hmm, okay, that's a challenge for me. I, I have to go back and study how this works. Okay, so phase number one, the easy question is, how is it that the scribes can say that Christ is the son of David? Well, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. But now here's the additional information. And we move on to verse 36, where Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Okay, so Jesus is appealing to what David said. And he is saying that what David said was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just a little aside here. We run into people who want to discredit the Old Testament. And Jesus would look at David, an author of portions of the Old Testament, and say, no, David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Old Testament scriptures. I accept it. And so here is Jesus using David's words. So what did David say? David says this in Psalm 110. Here's Jesus' words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay. Now, second question that we're moving into. How is David's Lord also his son? How is David's Lord also his son? All right. The son of David is the Christ. He's the Messiah. But how is it that David's Lord is also his descendant down the line. All right, so let's look at Psalm 110, verse 1. That's where David was, where Jesus was quoting from. So Psalm 110, now you can flash it up there on the screen. Psalm 110, this is where Jesus is quoting from, and this is a little more helpful to see, where it says here, the Lord says to my Lord. Now note there the different cases of the letters there. The first Lord is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Hebrew name for Yahweh. So if you were to look behind that in the Hebrew text, you would see Yahweh behind that. The second Lord is capital L and then little o, little r, little d. And if you were to look behind that in the Hebrew text, you would see the name Adonai, which often refers to master. It conveys the idea of a ruler or one who is in authority. That second term right there is the term that Jesus is pointing to in reference to the Messiah. So we know who the first Lord is. That's God. But David writes that God or the Lord speaks to David's Lord. Well, who is this second Lord with the lowercase letters? Okay, hang with the text here. 
We could go all over scriptures and like start to develop an answer, but let me just turn you to the scriptural passage that answers it for us. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 36. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is the second Lord? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So if we're wondering back from Psalm 110, who is God, Yahweh, speaking to as this second Lord? Peter says, it's Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the second Lord. He's the one to whom Yahweh is speaking. He's the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Father is bringing all of the enemies of Jesus under his footstool. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So let me just bring you up to speed if you're kind of fuzzy on things with what's taking place. Your grandchildren, 10 or 20 generations down the family tree, cannot be your master right now. This is David back in Psalm 110 speaking about his master. And yet, something very special is going on here where the son of David is actually his master. To go back to you as a grandparent, your children and grandchildren 10 or 20 generations down cannot be your master and Lord unless, unless somehow your grandchildren are already in existence right now. And this is what is going on with the person of Jesus. Jesus is existing pre-incarnate. He's existing as the Son of God, which was the argument from Mark 1, verse 1. He's existing before he descended and became flesh. He's existed from eternity past. He was the creator in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He was God in heaven during the life of Abraham, Moses, the judges, and David. Jesus has always been Adonai. He has always been Lord. So when David was writing Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing about Jesus, the Son of God, who 1,000 years later would descend from heaven and be born down into the family line of David. And so in that way, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was David's son, and yet he was David's Lord. And so we look at Jesus and we say, yes, this again points to his nature as the son of God from Mark chapter 1 and the Messiah. He uniquely exists. Okay, question number three. What is the significance of this? This is all information up to this point, you might say. But bring it home so that I can have gladness in my heart. As a Christian, I have a Lord. As a Christian, 
I have a Lord. This truth about Jesus clarifies now whom David submitted his life to and whom you and I must submit our lives to. Jesus is Lord. He is Adonai. He is Master. And so the question that comes to mind is, to whom or to what are you submitting your life to this week? Now let's just step back for a moment and think about this from maybe the everyday kind of scenarios that take place. We often submit our lives and our wills to the circumstances that are taking place. So a circumstance pops up in life and we respond by saying, however that circumstance happens, I need to respond so that the circumstance goes in my favor. And however this conversation over here goes, I need to respond so that the conversation goes in my favor. And the whole time, what we're missing is that God has given us a path forward where we can say, no matter what circumstance I'm in or what conversation I'm in, that doesn't matter. Who is my authority? To whom am I submitting? I'm submitting to Jesus as Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter wrote this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. When we see that Jesus is both the Messiah who saves and the Adonai Lord, we know whom we submit to. We know that as we make our decisions going into the week, we ultimately make them in obedience and reverence to the Lord. I must look at decisions and directions in my life as being submissive to him. You are not without a leader, Christian. We all crave leadership. We crave sincere, truthful, godly leadership. Every human leader will fail you, but Jesus won't. And so in this, we know that Jesus is Lord. Significance number two. We can trust Jesus, especially when opponents of God seem to have won the day. We trust Jesus, especially when the opponents of God seem to have won the day. Now back in Psalm 110, where Jesus is quoting this, the text says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I bring your enemies or put your enemies under your footstool or under your feet. What does the phrase under your feet mean or this phrase footstool mean? Keep in mind, Jesus does have enemies. And God promises now that he will bring all of those enemies under the feet of Jesus. The enemies of God will someday be under the complete subjection of Jesus. All enemies of Jesus will be defeated. And so you look at some of the old pictures of a conquering warrior, and that conquering warrior actually has his foot upon the neck of his enemies. That's the picture here, where God is going to bring all enemies under the feet of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are facing those same enemies, those opponents of God. 
But we can trust that God will someday bring all of those enemies of his into subjection. Who are these enemies? Number one, they're spiritual enemies. Going back to Genesis 3, the very beginning of time, Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Since the very beginning of creation, we have had an enemy in the person of Satan. Satan has been wreaking havoc in people's lives. But take heart that all enemies, including Satan, will be under the footstool of Jesus. Revelation 20 Verses 9 and 10, here's the picture here, that as Satan has deceived the nations, he's leading them, and it says that they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Someday, all the spiritual enemies of Jesus will be once and for all defeated. All of the carnage, all of the sin, all of the hurt that has been caused by sin will be defeated. So take heart, even though when the opponents of God seem to have won the day, trust Jesus that his enemies will be defeated. The spiritual enemies of sin will be defeated. It's not just spiritual enemies. It's also the human enemies of Jesus. I can't help but wonder if Jesus had something specific in mind when he quoted Psalm 110, especially with the attacks that he had faced during the week. Look down at verse 38. It said, and in his teaching, he said, that is Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, they make long prayers. Notice what happens. They too will receive the greater condemnation. Does Jesus have personal enemies? Yes, he does. And they will be brought under the feet of Jesus. A man who had been questioning who Jesus is, he once asked me, do you really think that when Jesus returns, he is going to destroy people and send them to hell? It doesn't sound very loving. It doesn't sound very Jesus-like. And I answered him by saying, do you think that when Jesus returns, all people will actually love him? These rulers couldn't stand Jesus. They're two days away from putting him to death. There are people today who disregard Jesus, even religious leaders, and especially religious leaders. And unless those people repent and trust Jesus, they are walking as enemies of Christ and will receive condemnation. They will be brought under the foot of Jesus. So in your mind now, there are enemies of the cross. And those enemies of the cross might do you harm. And you just ask, is it always going to be this way? And the answer is, no, it won't always be this way. Leave it to Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. 
So these are bold truths because of who Jesus is. He is Lord Adonai. And all people will have to submit to him. In fact, in Philippians 2, every knee will eventually bow to Christ as Lord. So the day will come when all people will have to stand before Jesus and either be saved unto eternal life or be judged into everlasting death. The enemies of Jesus will be put to death. So there's spiritual enemies, there's personal enemies, and then third, there's simply death. Death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All enemies, last one being death, will be placed under the feet of Jesus. So let me ask you a simple question. Are you feeling defeated by the sinfulness of the world? Are you going into election season worried about the implications of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the debauchery? One of the things that you can do even this week is lift your eyes and cling to truths like this. Here is Jesus who is Lord and all the sinfulness that can potentially be legalized this week will someday come to and end under the rule and reign of Jesus. So if you're worried, is Prop 3 going to go through this week because it's awful, you know that someday, if Prop 3 goes through, Prop 3 will be no more because all sin and all wickedness will be defeated. It will be under the foot of this warrior Jesus, this Adonai. Are you burdened by the effects of Satan? Sin, spiritual enemies in your family? Are you aching because Satan has just come in and taken his tools and just sort of blended things up and made a mess? He's wreaked havoc in people's lives. Are you burdened by those effects that sin has splashed onto so many different lives and left you hurting and maybe hopeless? Do you see sin in your marriage? And do you see the consequences of it? Do you see sin in, in those who are next to you? And you just look at it and you say, it's not supposed to be this way. Here is the Messiah. Here is the Adonai. And all of that stuff is going to be cleaned up and it's going to be put under the feet of Jesus. And look at Jesus now in your mind's eye who is ruling and reigning with his foot over all sin. Lies will no longer be told. Greed will no longer be a pursuit. Objectifying people and children will be put down. Death will be put to death and it will all be under the foot of Jesus. This is who he is. And so right now, here we are. We trust Jesus, especially when the opponents of God seem to have won the day. Let us see if you're taking notes. We trust Jesus, especially when sin in our own lives appears to have won the day. Wrapped up in this statement is Jesus' deity. He is Lord. He's existed in eternity past as the Son of God. That's how David could call him Lord. And yet, he's David's son. And then that, we see his humanity. Jesus did come. He was an actual physical descendant of David. 
And so in verse 39, it says, or in verse 37, David, or Jesus says, he is David's son. How is it that he is David's son? And we're seeing this, yes, he came through David's line. This points to his humanity. But what will Jesus do in his humanity? Well, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, an angel came to Joseph and passed along the following message to Joseph. Matthew 1, verse 20. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, an actual human son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But what will he do as a man? He will save his people from their sins. So here is the Son of God, the Adonai Lord from Psalm 110, and yet he's coming into the world as the Son of David. And what is it that he's going to do as the Son of David? He is going to save people from their sins. Are you burdened with the guilt of sin this morning? Those scars that Andy was talking about at the beginning, some of those choices were your own. Some have said even this last week, I'm guilty before God. I have crossed the line before him and I deserve eternal condemnation. Do you find yourself being unkind to someone? Do you find yourself being spiteful and hateful from the heart towards others? Do you hear your words of sin this past week over and over again? Do you see your actions over and over again, almost playing like a highlight reel in your mind? Here is the Christ who came. He came as a human and he lived the perfect sinless life as a human. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come. And he was perfect. And in his perfection, he willingly went to the cross and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The unkindness that we committed to other people. The hateful heart that we've had towards others. The words of sin that came out. The actions towards others. Jesus went to the cross and he bore those sins in his body on the tree. And the Bible says that here is the son of David. He's not only bearing our sins, but he's the propitiation for our sins, which is a fancy word for taking those sins and then taking them away from us. He is the lamb of God for us, where the sacrifice is made and those who are making the sacrifice would put their hands on the lamb and in doing that symbolically, the righteousness or the purity of the lamb would be transferred to them and their sins would be transferred to the lamb so it could be taken away. Here's Jesus who is the lamb of God. Here's Jesus who is the mercy of God towards us. Without Jesus, we deserve the just judgment from God for those words, for those unkind actions, for the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here is Jesus in front of us. He is the love of God. For God so loved the world in what way that he sent his son. He is the grace of God who has appeared. The kindness that we don't deserve. 
And here is Jesus on Tuesday, facing the attacks from the religious leaders, going forward towards Thursday night and Friday, where we see him hanging on the cross as a human, as the son of David, delivering us from the worst of any and all of our sins. And who will raise three days later and show that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted. That's Jesus. That is the good news. He is God from eternity past, the Son of God, and he is Christ, the Messiah, who has come to give his life as a ransom for me and for you. Right now, you can hear those words and be gladdened in your heart. That's good news that Jesus has come.